welcome to Perspectives, Faskin's legal voices on business. Hi everyone, my name is Tsepo Mugwana, an associate at Faskin, and today I'm joined by pension law partner and colleague Rosemary Hunter. Hi Rose. Hi Tsepo and hi to all our listeners. In this podcast, we'll talk about a very interesting judgment uh, handed down by the Constitutional Court on 14 March 2022, and that is the Municipal Employees Pension Fund and another versus Mongwakezi and another. It's very interesting for the precedence that it gives to the pension law industry. So to just jump right into it, the facts of the matter are that the Ngakamudiri Mulema District Municipality employed Dineo Mwakezi as its chief audit executive on a five-year fixed-term contract. When her employment commenced in February 2012, she and the municipality together completed an application form for her membership of the Municipal Employees Pension Fund. At that time, no one told her that in terms of the rules of the fund, only permanently employed municipal employees could become members. So the municipality deducted both member and employer contributions from Ms. Mwakezi's monthly remuneration and then paid them to the fund. She was then subsequently treated as a member. Two years later, Ms. Mwakezi discovered that she had never been eligible for membership of the fund in terms of its rules. So the municipality, being her employer, stopped deducting and paying contributions to the fund and then asked the fund to refund her all the contributions she had then paid to that date approximately 850000 with interest. The fund refused that request, saying that she had indeed become a member and enjoyed all membership benefits, including death and disability cover. Her contract then expired two and a half years later, and the standoff with the fund had not been resolved. The fund then paid her an early withdrawal benefit based only on her member contributions and from which tax had been deducted. She was naturally aggrieved by this, and so lodged the complaint against the fund with the pension fund's adjudicator. In it, she asked the adjudicator to order the fund to pay her the balance of her contributions plus interest. After the, considering the submissions of both parties, the adjudicator granted the order Ms. Mungwagetze has sought, but dissatisfied by that, the fund then applied to the High Court in terms of PAJA, or the Promotion of Administrative Justice Act, for an order reviewing and setting aside the determination of the pension fund's adjudicator and its order. At the same time, they appealed the adjudicator's findings in terms of Section 30P of the Pension Funds Act. And from there, that's where things got interesting. So that's where I'd like you, Rose, to explain to our listeners as to why. Thank you, Tsepo. That's a good summary. As you said, this case did get interesting. In fact, it got so interesting that it ended up in the Constitutional Court. So let me walk you through the steps of how it got there and what the final outcome was. The High Court agreed with the adjudicator and found in favour of Ms. Mongoketse, but the fund was unhappy with this, so it appealed against the High Court's rulings to the Supreme Court of Appeal. Unfortunately, Ms. Mongoketse, being an individual, could not afford to uh, appoint lawyers to defend the, the, uh, the findings of the adjudicator in the High Court, and so she was not represented at the hearing before the Supreme Court of Appeal. So the, the judge president of the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Meyer, asked the Bloemfontein Bar to appoint one of its members, one of the advocates, to present arguments as an amicus or friend of the court, so that the court wouldn't hear arguments only from one side. So after hearing the two sets of arguments, the Supreme Court of Appeal, like the High Court and like the adjudicator, ruled in favour of Ms. Mongoketsa and against the fund. 
but then the fund successfully sought leave to appeal to the Constitutional Court. Now, I'd been very impressed by the judgment of Justice Malcolm Wallace for the majority of the Supreme Court bench, because he's such a teacher in the way that he writes his judgments, and he helpfully addressed and clarified many issues of relevance to retirement funds generally. So I was a bit concerned that this, when I heard that this matter was going to the Constitutional Court, I was concerned particularly because if Ms. Mongoketse had not been able to afford representation in the Supreme Court of Appeal, it was likely she wouldn't be able to be represented in the, before the Constitutional Court. So I brought this to the attention. I, I contacted the Center for Applied Legal Studies at the University of the Witz because I was aware that CALS uh, had a special interest in human rights issues relating to retirement funds. So I told them that uh, about the main issues, legal issues that were important, not just to Ms. Mongo Ketze, but to retirement funds generally. And I asked if it would be willing to apply for leave to intervene as an amicus. Fortunately, it was. And Advocate Sandile Kumalo is a senior counsel and one of our leading pension law specialists at the bar. He agreed to act on behalf of Carl's uh, pro bono. And as expected, Ms. Mongo Ketze was not represented at the, in the, at the hearing. And I think that the Constitutional Court derived considerable benefit from the submissions of uh, made by Advocate Kumalo on behalf of Kals during the hearing, which took place in November last year. Yeah, so Rose, what were then the big issues that the courts uh, from the High Court uh, until the Constitutional Court had to deal with in this matter? Sure. As in most litigation, there were skirmishes between the parties on a wide range of issues, but I want to deal with only three, and then only with what the Constitutional Court had to say about them, even though the, I thought the Supreme Court of Appeal Court, judgment, the majority judgment, was particularly good. These issues might seem a bit technical, but as I said, they're very important for the retirement industry as a whole, and those who are, I think, uh, legal advisors, trustees, and others who, who are deeply involved in it would understand uh, why they're important. So the first issue was about membership of a fund and whether Ms. Mongo Ketse had become a member of the fund because she had applied for membership and had been paying contributions for two years and so on. The fund's argument was that Ms. Mongo Ketse became a member of the fund, even if its rules had disqualified her from membership, because there was a rule that said that the board could decide whether somebody met the eligibility criteria or not. The second argument of the fund was that Ms. Mongo Ketse was stopped from arguing that she had not become a member because she had made a representation that she was a member by paying contributions to the fund. And so she had represented to the fund that she was entitled to be a member and uh, she was either stopped from arguing that she was not or she'd waived her right to argue that she was not. Now, as a, uh, just a side note, estoppel is a, a formal legal term. A person may be stopped from asserting a right or raising a defence to a claim that is inconsistent with their own prior conduct, provided that the claim itself is not based on invalid conduct. Justice Rogers, on behalf of the uh, unanimous bench of the Constitutional Court, rejected both of these arguments by the fund. He reaffirmed that, one, the rules of a fund are binding on it in terms of Section 13 of the Pension Funds Act, and two, conduct that is not authorised by the rules of the fund is ultra vires, so it's beyond the powers of the fund, and accordingly invalid. He also confirmed that the principle of estoppel can't be used to make what is invalid valid. So the second issue was whether the pension fund's adjudicator had jurisdiction to determine the dispute. Not surprisingly, the fund argued that if Ms. Bonga Ketze had never become a member of the fund, then the adjudicator did not have jurisdiction to determine the dispute because Ms. Bonga Ketze could not fall within the definition of complainant as defined in the Pension Funds Act. And the Section 1 of the Pension Funds Act defines a any person who is or claims to be a member of the, or former member of a fund, a beneficiary or former beneficiary of a fund, 
an employer that participates in a fund, a spouse or former spouse of a member or former member of a fund, any group of people who are of that kind, the board of a fund, and any person who has an interest in a complaint. Yeah. So this was an argument that found favor with two of the five judges in the Supreme Court of Appeal. They said she wasn't a member or former member and she wasn't any of the others. Mm. Um, and you couldn't just have an interest in a complaint if there wasn't somebody else who had, who had raised the complaint in the first place. But before the Constitutional Court, Advocate Kamala, on behalf of Carls, argued that the interpretation of the Act should be done with due regard to the constitutional rights at stake, including the right to social security, basically arguing that funds, uh, retirement funds are vehicles for delivery of social security benefits. And that's a, a right under Section 27 of the Bill of Rights. Uh, it also should be taken into account as the right to have legal disputes decided in a fair public hearing in terms of Section 34 of the Bill of Rights. So Advocate Kamala pointed out that if the adjudicator could not entertain complaints from people who are improperly admitted to membership, their only recourse would be to litigate in the High Court, which most would not be able to afford to do. So while Kells agreed that Ms. Mongoketsa did not fall within the scope of A to C of the definition, that's the member, former member, beneficiary, former beneficiary, and so on, it argued she did fall within the scope of paragraph D because she had an interest in the complaint as defined. The fund, on the other hand, said that the, the term complaint is defined as a complaint of a complainant. So you can't have a complaint without a complainant. Hmm. And that was a very li literal reading of it. But yeah. the Constitutional Court chose to adopt a wide interpretation of paragraph D of the definition of complaint, saying a person who has an interest in a complaint should not be confined to a person who has an interest in an existing complaint by another person who was a member, a former member, beneficiary, former beneficiary, and so on. So what limits the adjudicator's jurisdiction, the court said, was the definition of the term complaint, not complainant. And it found that the dispute concerning Ms. Mongoketsu's demand for a refund of her contributions was in fact a complaint relating to the administration of the fund, and so the adjudicator did have jurisdiction to determine it. The third issue was finally a, a smaller issue, but still important, was who was entitled to a refund of the contributions paid by the municipality to the fund on, uh, for Ms. Mongoketsu's benefit? Now, as you know, under the Pension Funds Act, it's the employer's responsibility to pay not only its own contributions, but if there are contributions to be paid in terms of the rules by the member, it is the employer's job to deduct those contributions from the member's salary and pay them to the fund. And the employer wasn't a party to this litigation. So what Ms. Mongoketsu was claiming was a refund of her contributions plus interest on the basis that the fund had been unjustifiably enriched by those contributions because it had never been entitled to be paid them. And she had suffered a loss as a result of, of the unlawful, well, invalid payment of those contributions. One of the Supreme Court of Appeal judges had held that since it was the municipality that had been responsible for deducting and paying the contributions, it was the municipality that should have been claiming them back. <laughs> but Justice Rogers of the Constitutional Court just disagreed with this, and he said, and I quote, The municipality in law owed Ms. Mongolkatsi her full salary. She authorized the municipality to pay part of it to the MEPF, the fund in this case. If A owes money to B, and B instructs A to discharge the debt by paying the money to C in discharge of a debt which B mistakenly believes she owes to C, then it is B, Ms. Mongoketsu in this case, and not A, the municipality, who can pursue the condictio and debiti against, the, against C, which is the fund. And that's a general, general principle of these kinds of claims. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that the main lessons to be drawn from this judgment are threefold. 
One, that a fund has to be very careful about ensuring that it acts strictly within the limits of the powers given to it in terms of its rules. In particular, it must check whether each person who signs up for membership is in fact eligible for membership of the fund. And by the way, this was a lesson that all funds should have learned from the Brian Mollefen Escom Pension and Provident Fund case. But secondly, based on this Concord ruling, the previous assumption of what is and what is not a complainant has been revised, specifically regarding who is entitled to take a grievance to the adjudicator. And thirdly, just because a, an employer has a duty in terms of Section 13A of the Pensions Funds Act, to act as the conduit for the payment of contributions to an occupational retirement fund. That doesn't mean that any refunds payable by the fund in respect of a member must be paid to the employer. The true source of the contribution is the remuneration of the member and by consequence the member itself. I'm not sure, Rose, did I summarize the judgment nicely? <laughs> yes, you did, Sepo. Just a couple of things. You mentioned that uh, a retirement fund should have a proper procedure in place to try to minimize the risk that they sign up people who are not, in fact, eligible for membership because yes. it can be a big process. Now they have to pay uh, to, to reverse all these transactions, disinvest money, work out what they owe the member, and so on. So certainly I think that a fund should devise a procedure for making sure that an employer certifies uh, that a member falls within whatever the categories of eligible members so that you know, they would have to answer questions uh, that they could be held accountable for, like, you know, was the person employed in terms of a fixed-term contract? How long is that fixed-term contract? Or was that person employed in terms of a permanent uh, contract of employment? And so on. All the eligibility criteria. But there's another angle that wasn't addressed at all in this case, but something that I think that employers should think about is the risks that they may, may take if they are signing people up for membership of a fund without checking that their employees are in fact entitled to be members of those funds. Because yeah. it's from the employers that most new employees, most new employees expect their employers to know what their yeah. rights and obligations are in relation to employee benefits. And so I, I think that it's important that an employer also has a trains its HR staff or makes sure that its HR staff are well uh, versed in, in the rules of the various funds in which the employer might be participating so that they know to advise the, the employees or, or to tell the employees that you must belong to this fund or you can't belong to that fund and so on. And I think mm. that that's just what, you know, one of a range of things that employers should be careful when they're onboarding new employees uh, to address. Yeah. And, and from what you've just said, I think perhaps the other thing is to review their membership forms that it could be clear from the forms itself whether one is eligible for membership and that possibly could have avoided something in a case like this. Yeah, that's entirely right. And so I'm sure you would agree with me, Sepul, that this case and, and the sort of surrounding issues show that pension law is constantly evolving and remains interesting and absorbing for people like me and you for a long time to come. Indeed. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to chat to you about the case today. Cheers. Likewise, Rose. Goodbye. Thank you.